Well, good afternoon, church. My name is David Lawrence, one of the sinners saved by grace in this gathering. Many years ago, our son uh, was excited to shoot a BB gun that his grandfather owned. So we took him out. We taught him how to shoot. We taught him about gun safety, that he should never point it at someone or something in order to cause harm. Excitedly, he went outside. He went around the house looking for targets to shoot. Walking around the side of the house, he saw there a dragonfly perched on a branch. He took aim and he pulled the trigger and shot at it. Now, he still argues to this day that he hit that dragonfly. But what's more important is what was behind that little bug. It was his grandparents' decorated glass front door. That small copper ball went past or perhaps through the dragonfly, striking that glass panel. Within seconds, the entire glass shattered and fell to the ground. Well, his error was obvious. There was no hiding that. The broken glass cried out from the ground about his foolishness and his disobedience. So, hanging his head in shame, he came in and confessed. Now, whether on purpose or not, he broke the door. Justly, he was the one responsible for its replacement. But it was so much more than he had ability to cover. He had no skill to recraft that glass panel. He had no money to pay for it. He needed someone outside of himself to pay his price. And he was grateful for a loving family community that would come around him to help. It's a picture of humanity's problem. Our sin before our holy creator. You see, in our sin, we have shamefully broken something far more valuable than a glass door. Something far beyond our ability to replace. We've broken our relationship with our Creator. Now, church, we're working our way through Paul's letter to the believers in Rome. We're now at that section where Paul begins an explanation of the gospel. In this section from Romans 1.18 through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul shows us the extent and the magnitude of our sin. Today, I'm going to give us an overview of sin. And then in the weeks to follow, we'll go back into that longer section and look at the details that are there. Our main point for the overview of, of, of the sermon today is sin justly and truly deserves God's wrath. Sin justly and truly deserves God's wrath. Holy wrath. 
Now, Paul has just mentioned in verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation for everyone who believes. The first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. This gospel is the power of God that brings salvation. Why? Because people need to be saved. The first thing that the gospel tells us, it's the first thing that Paul goes to in his explanation, is that we are wrong. We're wrong. We're sinners. And we deserve God's wrath and his righteous justice. That judgment is eternal punishment in hell. Now, people don't like to hear about hell. In fact, it makes us uncomfortable to say it and to talk about it. But if we're not clear on sin and the consequences that it deserves, we we might actually be ashamed of the gospel. But Paul is not. Paul is not ashamed and he gets very clear on sin for the next 63 verses in Romans. You see, God's wrath is justly and truly deserved because we are complete sinners. That's our first point. Complete sinners. And I have four things to say about this doctrine of sin. It's what theologians sometimes call total depravity. Do you remember when we first became aware of COVID? Remember how big of a deal that was? I mean, it was huge. We were locked down for weeks that turned into months that actually have turned into years in some ways. People were literally suffocating to death. It was no simple thing. The whole world shut down in terror that they might be the next victim. Well, sin, friends, number one, it is the universal pan- or the ultimate pandemic. Sin is the ultimate pandemic. Sins everywhere. And everyone sins. You know, COVID is nothing compared to sin. COVID was dangerous, yes. But with sin, there's no vaccine. We have all been affected, infected. Sin's suffering is both now and forever. It is a death that never dies. Now, the doctrine of sin is actually very easy to prove. The evidence is abundant. I mean, popular people sin, shy people sin, parents sin, children sin, even babies sin. Listen to what David writes in Psalm 51, verses 5 and 6. He says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you, God, desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Sin is, number two, in our nature. 
Our sin nature is where those many sins come from. It's not really even about the quantity or the severity of our sins that condemns us before God, but the fact that we are sinners. This natural drive started with our first parents, Adam and Eve, in that garden. And the Apostle John calls that the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And our sins seem to fall into those categories. We're not only sinners by nature, however. We are sinners, number three, by choice. If we'd been in that garden, we would have done the exact same thing. We would have made the same choice. Rather than filling the earth with the glory of God that was commanded... We chose to fill ourselves with the glories of the earth. We want, we strive, we get and gain for our own and for ourselves. We fill our bellies, we fill our bank accounts, we fill our bodies and minds with the pleasures of this world. We choose to turn from God and we make idols Out of everything in the earth. In choosing sin. We unknowingly have made ourselves. Number four. Slaves to sin. Slaves to sin. Sin seems pleasant. And, And actually for a time. Sin is enjoyable. Ask any sinner. Why do you sin? Because I like it. That's the empty promise of sin. Pleasure now. And yet the moment you try to leave sin, it's like that dog, you know, who's trying to get away. He suddenly finds the end of the rope. That's what it's like. You feel the chain of sin. As Paul says in Romans 6.16, when you offer yourself to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey. Well, in choosing sin, it becomes our master. You you see, when, when you sin, you're not as free as you think you are. We think we're free to sin. But we're actually slaves. Like the slave trades of the 16 to the 1800s, you've fallen into sin's trap. And without rescue, you are doomed to servanthood in misery under an evil master until you die. Unless by some miracle of God's grace, you find ransom. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And like the rest, we were deserving of wrath. Sin is pandemic. Sin is our very nature. And we have chosen sin. 
Yet it has become our master and we, it's unaware slaves. So what are we to do with our sin? How are we to handle it? As Joe asked earlier. Well, first, a question. First, do you try to make up for sin by doing good things? Do you try to outdo your sin by doing good? Friends, good works don't cover over sin. And they don't make God like you any better. That is what man-made religion says. God is 100% holy. He does not accept anything less than perfect holiness. And besides, your good works are not as good as you think they are. Listen to what Isaiah 64, 6 says. Even our righteous acts are like menstrual rags. Not good. It is impossible to overcome sins with good works. Impossible. Secondly, aren't you expecting the church to be perfect? Do you expect the people here to be perfect? (laughs) We're all sinners. We're all sinners. In fact, everyone you interact with throughout life is a sinner. Sin is not just out there. It's, It's right here. It's right here. The church is a hospital Full of sinners seeking healing, seeking deliverance. There's no one perfect except Jesus. So thirdly, what to do with your sin? Acknowledge that you're a sinner. Confess your sin. Your own sin. James 5.16 says this. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for one another that you may be healed. That's what the church is, friends. Don't cover your sin like a child who's being told to clean up and he stuffs his toy under the rug. Like that toy, do you know what? Your sin is obvious. Numbers 32.23. Write that down. You want to know that one. Numbers 32.23. You may be sure that your sin will find you out. So don't hide your sin. It, It is destructive. It is like mold that grows in a dark place. But you know what? When you bring that mold out into the light, you know what it does? It dies. Bring your sin to light through confession and repentance and be healed. That is hard. That is 
so hard. Because sin is shameful. It's... Well, nobody's proud of... Well, some people are. Nobody's proud to confess their sin. Or they shouldn't be. But the cross of Christ covers the shame of our sin, brothers and sisters. Just like the clothing that you wear every day that covers your nakedness. Put on Christ and no longer walk in shame. Put on Christ. Oh, church, let's be a people who confess sin. We, we are sinners clothed in Christ in the gospel. Let's be repenting and turning from our sin, not just feeling bad about it and certainly not continuing in it. And let's be a church, a people who forgive sins. You know, love covers over a multitude of sins, says the scripture. So, friends, let's cover one another, not our sin. Let's cover one another, not our sin. Listen, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you is a critical display of. Of the reality of the gospel in your life. And that couldn't be more serious. That right after his right after Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. It's that place in Matthew's gospel where where we typically call it the Lord's Prayer. Listen to what Jesus says. The very next verse. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive your sins. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. Brothers and sisters, that could not be more critical for living out the gospel. For the gospel being real in our lives. It is hard. It's so hard to do this. I remember Pastor Garrett Kell. He came to Dubai several years ago when we were there. And he spoke about his past sinful addiction to pornography. While he was a pastor. He had confessed this sin to his elders and his elders said to him, brother, pastor. You must confess this sin before the church. He said it was the hardest thing that he ever did. And can you imagine? Can you imagine the shame? I mean, he wasn't sure how the congregation would react would, would, would they lose all respect for him? Would he lose his authority as a, as a pastor? Would they kick him out? He confessed. He laid his life into the hands of his Savior. And he confessed. 
And the church received his confession. They forgave him as did Christ. And they embraced him in his fight for purity. You know, after he preached this story in our church, several were cut to the heart. And they began to confess sins to one another in the church. The church grew deeper in love as we each saw our own sin more clearly. And yet at the same time, God's grace in the gospel more brilliantly. We are completely sinful, totally depraved. But acknowledging our sin, confessing our sin, forgiving our sin is how we take sin seriously. And we need to have that same mindset that the Puritan who once said, the worst thing about sin is not so much the kind of sin committed, but the greatness of the person sinned against. The worst thing about sin is who we have sinned against. This great and holy God justly and rightly hates sin. And he confronts the sinner in their sin with his holy wrath. That's our second point. Holy wrath. Now, we don't understand how holy God is because we've never experienced something so pure, so high, so so beautiful as the Lord God Almighty. I mean, to understand God's response to sin in holy wrath, we really need, firstly, a better understanding of God's holiness. We need a better understanding of God's holiness. We, we compare goodness with whatever is around us or whoever is around us. It's, we're like that ant. Noticing the difference in the heights of the blades of fresh cut grass. You know, we're right down there. But God's goodness is like that giant tree in that same field of grass. It's so far above that ant. The little ant can't even comprehend the tree's true height. And so... How are we to comprehend the glory, the holiness, the purity of our God? It's only when he tells us. You know, Isaiah describes the time when he saw God's holiness in Isaiah chapter 6. He sees smoke. And he sees the end, just the end of God's robe as it fills the temple. And there are these creatures, these holy creatures called seraphim. And they're flying to and fro. And they're crying out in loud voices that shake the thresholds of the temple. As they say, holy, holy, holy. 
is the Lord God Almighty. God is so holy. that he tells Moses, who asked, let me see your glory. God said, no one shall see my face and live. Friends, God is holy. He is pure. And he will never be less than who he is. And so, secondly, we must understand that God will do what is right and just. He will do what is holy. He will always act according to right. In fact, he is the standard of what is right. Deuteronomy 32.4 says all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just as he. And God's justice, that is both extremely comforting and very terrifying. It's comforting because we know for certain that one day all that's wrong in this world Everything that Joe lamented about in that prayer will be made right. Every victim will be avenged. Every sin will be covered. And that vengeance will completely be satisfied in God's justice. God's right and righteous anger with sin and those who sin is seen throughout the scriptures. Far too many to to number. But just listen to Psalm 11.5, which says, The wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. And this is why God's justice is also terrifying. It's terrifying because as we've already established, we are all sinners who do wrong. Therefore, number three, we need to understand that we all deserve God's righteous judgment that ends in hell. That's what we deserve. With every sin, we are storing up the consequences of sin. As Paul says in Romans 2, 5. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God's righteous justice revealed on that day of wrath, that final day of the Lord is when all the enemies of God will be thrown into hell. Hell. Hell is conscious, eternal punishment for the wicked. Conscious, eternal punishment for the wicked. Hell, friends, is real. Jesus talked about hell. More than anyone else in the Bible, Jesus talked about hell. He talked about it even more than he talked about heaven and even more vivid descriptions of it. He called it the unquenchable fire, a place where 
their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's a place where of outer darkness where men will weep and gnash their teeth. He said the condemned will go away into eternal hell or eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Does the doctrine of hell make you uncomfortable? I hope so. It should. (laughs) It should. If your heart isn't moved with deep sorrow over those who are doomed to hell, then there is something seriously wrong. Spiritually and emotionally. You see, because God has placed love in our hearts for those that are created in his image. And so we cringe with sorrow and fear and pain for those who have not trusted in Christ. And yet, church, there is hope. While there is breath, there is hope. While somebody is alive, there is hope that they too may put faith in Christ. And be counted among the saved. It's that same feeling that Paul had for his own Jewish people who were rejecting Christ. When he says in Romans 9 two, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for my people. And me, I'm ripped to shreds by the idea of hell. Friends, family, who are rejecting Christ. What helps me is is remembering God's glory and goodness. His, His justice, His wisdom, His love. He will always do right. He's good and perfect in all His ways. Friends, if hell did not exist Justice would be incomplete and God's glory would be stained. I want to give you four reasons why this doctrine of hell is important. Firstly, it satisfies our sense of justice. And not only has God placed this, this love in the sense of love in us, but he's also placed in us this sense of justice. We, we expect fairness In the world. That's why we get so upset when there's corruption. Revelation 20 speaks of that day of final judgment. It it opens with the judgment of Satan and then the vindication of those who have been killed because of the faith. But then in verse 12, listen to what it says. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. This judgment, this final judgment will be fair. It will be by the book. No one will be able to say God's judgment is not fair. So it satisfies our sense of justice. 
This doctrine of hell, it enables us to forgive others. Do you feel you need to get even or take revenge for something someone's done to you? Do you hold a grudge against others? Maybe giving them the silent treatment? Justice will come for every evil deed. Every sin. Listen, it will either be paid for on the head of Christ, if that wrongdoer becomes a Christian, or upon their own head in that final judgment if they do not trust Christ to save them. Either way, justice will be met. And would that they all would come to Christ. Thirdly, God's final judgment gives us a motivation to live right ourselves. Ecclesiastes 12.12, last verse, says God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. The Bible talks about those who will be rewarded as they lay up treasures in heaven. Jesus says to us to do that. Lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. I want to be one of those. I'm sure you do too. That when you meet Christ, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's happiness. Don't you long for that? But those who live their lives recklessly, as 1 Corinthians 3.15 says, they will suffer loss even though they may be saved. Even as one just escaping as through the flames. Let's live rightly. Fourth, hell provides a motivation for evangelism. Now, when you share the gospel, do you only talk about God's love? Or do you also talk about his wrath against sin? Our task is to proclaim The whole gospel. The whole gospel. And the good news is actually only good news when we understand the bad news. We've got to understand and give people the opportunity to know the bad news so that they understand the good news is good. And as people respond in faith, God's grace to save them is revealed. As Paul says in Romans 10, 14, we we must proclaim the gospel. Otherwise, they don't have an opportunity to believe. Now, concerning judgment. God himself uh, says this in Ezekiel 33, 11. He says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn from their ways and live And then he gives this command to the people of Israel listening, turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? And it begs the question here. Look, if you've not put your faith in Christ, this call is for you. Why will you die? Turn from your sin. Trust in Christ Jesus to save. Church. 
If we don't accept the reality of hell, then we don't understand the gospel. Because this doctrine exposes the vast ocean between God's holiness and our complete sinfulness. It's an ocean that no one can cross. Only God could. And in his grace, hallelujah, he has. And that's our third point, in which we find the hope of our complete sinfulness and God's holy wrath against sin coming together in hope. The very fact that we can talk about these things is because of God's grace. This grace, I want to talk about it in two parts. First, the grace of God to reveal himself and the grace of God to justify sinners. So first, let's consider the grace of revelation. Part of God's goodness and love is that he has revealed himself to us. He didn't have to. (laughs) No one said God had to reveal himself. But by grace, he has. In in back-to-back verses, Paul speaks of God's revelation. There in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel. And in chapter 1, verse 18, it says, therefore, the wrath of God is revealed. In these verses, and those that follow between chapter 1, 18 and chapter 3, 20, the gospel reveals the bad news. That we can never measure up to God's righteous standard. And therefore, we're subject to his wrath. That's what that whole section is going to be about. And Paul ends the argument in chapter 3, verse 23, stating, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All people. But it doesn't end with bad news. And this is where the second part of grace comes in. It's the grace to justify sinners. In Romans 3.24, Paul tells us that good news, the turning point in in this argument, that all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. And friends, that's good news. That is good news. Even though you are a natural born sinner. Choosing every day to sin, bound up in in sin as a slave with no hope of freeing yourself from it. In fact, if you got fair, if fair was what you want, then you deserve God's wrath and hell. But Jesus came to save you. His death on the cross wasn't fair. He lived a perfectly perfect life in every single way. His death was something that he chose to clear you of your sin debt and to cover over your shame. He breaks the chains of sin and his blood washes every stain of sin. His resurrection brings a new life, guarantees a new life, a life of hope and a life of peace with God. 
You don't have to face God's wrath. You can have peace with God. Because Jesus ransoms our life from hell. Trust Jesus. Trust him. He will justify you before God. He will do it. You don't have to justify yourself. God will declare you righteous, as it says in Romans 3.22. It says this. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Justification is free. It's by God's grace. It's enacted through faith. A faith that God gives to us. And if you've not trusted in Christ, then today, today could be your day of salvation. God's gift of grace leads to what Paul calls in Romans 1.5, the obedience that comes from faith. That first faith step is turning from sin and self, turning to God, turning from trusting yourself and your culture and your former patterns of life to turning to God's way of life and his patterns that are revealed in his word. It's a complete turn from self and sin to God. Jesus saves all who believe in him. And in him is life and love and joy and peace. Churches, as we work out this salvation together, see, it's God that works salvation in us and we get the joy of working it out. And as we work that out together, we experience this life and love and joy and peace of Christ in a powerful way right here, right now. Right now, to the glory of God. It's a radical new life that God calls us to together as his people. It's what we're striving for here at Revealed Baptist Church as a local church family. Getting the gospel right as a Christ-exalting family means that we are enabled to confess our sins without condemnation. There is now, therefore, no condemnation in Christ. We can do that because Jesus has carried our guilt. He has covered our shame. It means we can forgive each other when that sin is confessed because we've been forgiven. And when we live this way together, church, we joyfully display the beauty of the cross of Christ to the praise and glory of God. We're going to close our service today singing hallelujah for the cross. Hallelujah is a biblical word calling for the joyful praise of God. And it appears 23 times in the Psalms, 
but only four times in the New Testament. Three of these appear in the first four verses of Revelation 19. Each one is a response to God's final judgment on the wicked. Revelation 19, 1 to 4. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. And he has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again, they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke of her goes up forever and ever. Then the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried out, Amen. Hallelujah. Friends, because of the cross, sin will be justly and truly judged in God's holy wrath. Hallelujah. I want to pause now so that we can reflect on our sin and God's holy wrath. Are there sins that you're covering that you need to confess? Are there sins that you're covering that you need to confess? Is there someone you need to forgive or ask forgiveness from? Think about these things as we're in there. Are you covering sin you need to confess? Is there someone you need to forgive or ask forgiveness from? And finally, fearing God's judgment, who will you pray for and speak to about the gospel this week? Think about those things as we spend some time in reflection. After, after a moment, I'll close in prayer. Lord God Almighty, all your judgments are just and true. And you are right to judge sin and all who sin. Lord, may the kindness and severity of God lead many to repentance and salvation, even right now in this room or as we speak about this gospel, as we go through the week. Oh, Lord, for you have graciously given your son To bear our sin and shame on the cross, that beautiful cross that proclaims both your justice and your mercy. Oh, hallelujah for the cross. We praise you in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Church, let's now stand and roar with the multitude in heaven as we sing hallelujah for the cross.